Well, Pastor Greg, uh, you remind me that when I was a brand new Adventist at Pacific Union College, I could come in late for any service and march down that aisle past hundreds and hundreds of people and always find a front row, second row seat. Now, mind you, back in the day before I knew Jesus, when I got third row seats at Madison Square Garden to see Stevie Wonder doing his Inner Visions tour back when that was released, boy, that was exciting, you know, to get, you know, good seats like that. And, you know, there were a lot of shows that I had good seats to. Well, we, we're living in very confusing times. And we as Adventists have a unique understanding of the role of the United States and its role in prophecy. But that does not mean that Adventists are immune from deception, does it? Jesus, and we'll talk more in the worship hour, Jesus says, even the very elect, the deception's going to be so great that we're at risk, right? So let's see if we planned well in terms of how many slides and how much time we have. This is my buddy. You're going to hear more about Lucas um, during the worship hour. But, um, you know, he gets very sad when I travel. I was gone a couple of days, so I, he, he likes to stick with me at church. What is Christian about Christian America? There's a lot of talk in some circles about, you know, America is a Christian nation. Well, we Adventists have a little different take on that, don't we? So let's start here. Revelation 13, a second beast is introduced into the, into the prophetic picture, and it says, I saw another beast. A beast in prophecy represents what? A nation, an empire. Saw another beast coming up from the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, was speaking like a dragon. He exercised all the ruling authority of the first beast on his behalf, and made the earth and those who inhabit it worship the first beast, the one whose lethal wound had been healed. Now, sometimes we're careless in our reading of Scripture, or we read Ellen White and we think that um, we understand everything because we understand you know, how she explains it to us, and not to take issue with, with anything that... You know, her insights into prophecy, that's not my point, but we need to pay careful attention to the text. Now, one of the mistakes that we make in a careless reading is we imagine that the lamb-like part of this beast, the United States, that we were designed as a Christian nation and our glorious past is Christian. And our dark future is the dragon. That somehow uh, the dragon only really comes into play when we get into the final rapid movements of prophecy and Sunday laws and all that. That's not what the text says. 
The Greek tense is a present imperfect tense. The sense of it, and I'm an, I'm an amateur when it comes to Greek, but I did look this up. The sense of this is that this is action that began in the past. It's imperfect. It's incomplete. It's continuing into the present and even into the future. So both the speaking as a dragon and the two horns having two horns like a lamb, both of these propositions began in the past and are continuous through the course of American history, which suggests that the United States is not immune from the great controversy, but from the conflict between the lamb and the dragon, that this is being played out right here in our country in American history. Makes sense, right? So if you think about it, well, let's start with, you know, what is Christian about Christian America? Well, the lamb is a symbol in Scripture of Sabbath school. You're allowed to participate, right? Of Christ. Now, there's something uniquely Christ-like about America that's symbolized by two horns. Now, you know that in the book of Revelation, everything is an allusion to the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything. And what, when you think of two horns, what do you think of in the Hebrew scriptures where you have a prophetic beast with horns. How many horns? Well, you've got two images, right? But the, the, the seven heads and ten horns is in Revelation. In Daniel, twice you have a beast with a single little horn. And in Daniel, that single little horn represents a 1260-year period where the powers of church and state worked in close collaboration, right? There was a coming together of church and state. Now, there was an ebb and flow. You had uh, popes that were stronger and popes that were weaker. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just a, a, a constant but you had um, no real divide. And for the most part, the powers of the state were subordinate and at the direction in many respects to the powers of the church. So the two horns, like a lamb, is in direct contrast to the single little horn that was so oppressive that made war with the saints in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. So horns in Scripture are a symbol of what? Power. Heard somebody say it. You don't have to be timid about it. We can. It's okay if we're wrong, too, right? So horns are a symbol of power. So think about the symbolism then of two horns. It's a division or a separation of power. When I was in law school, 
I had the privilege of working for two law professors, which was fantastic because these guys were brilliant. They intellectually could run rings around me and, and very, very challenging. One of them had uh, clerked on the Supreme Court for five years during World War II, and he, uh, Gene Gressman, was named author of the book Supreme Court Practice. So, you know, in other words, he, he was the scholar who taught lawyers how to practice before the Supreme Court. He had a clinic. He takes students up to the Supreme Court every year and meet with various justices. And, um, and I had the privilege of working with him. He was hired to bring a case to the Supreme Court by Phillips Petroleum, and the court agreed to hear the case. So that was my first uh, experience taking a case all the way from uh, asking the court to take it, filing the cert petition and, and all the drafting and everything else. Separation of powers was Gene Grassman's major academic interest. And at the time, you know, my major academic interest was the First Amendment, religious freedom. I, separation of powers, you know, boring. Until we got into the post 9-11 era and uh, the USA Patriot Act and the concept of the unitary executive and all of a sudden uh, there were uh, these assertions of executive power that were really kind of blowing holes in the separation of powers and separation of powers became a major topic of constitutional law and conferences by the top con law scholars all over the country. Why is separation of power so important? Why was it so important to the founding fathers that it was a large subject of the Federalist Papers? Right Checks and balances. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we divide power among the three branches of the federal government, among federal, state, and local government, right? Um, and, and that is so critical to how we maintain a system of civil and religious freedom. So the, the two horns um, represent not only the division between uh, civil authority and religious authority, which it does, the separation of church and state is fundamental to the preservation of both civil and religious freedom, but the separation of powers itself. Two horns like a lamb. This, I, my proposition to you is, this is what is Christian about Christian America. Now, if you talk to the sociologists or read the sociologists, you know, they will do the surveys and point out, you know, the, how, what percentage of Americans go to church and identify as Christian. And there's certainly a sense in which by virtue of sheer numbers and identity, America has, um, through most of its history, been predominantly a Protestant, or a, not a Protestant nation, but a country of Protestants. And then, of course, you had major waves of Catholic immigration beginning in about the 1870s and 80s, and uh, obviously many other types of immigration as well. The largest growing segment of the population today in terms of religious affiliation 
Anybody know what's the fastest growing segment today? Okay, somebody says Muslims. Anybody else? Evangelical? Catholic? So I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to surprise you. You know, when you, um, you know, if you get a survey and it lists the various different, um, you know, boxes that you can check off to identify your religious affiliation, the fastest growing segment is the one at the bottom that says none. No religious affiliation. So we call them the nuns. N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E. And the reason, and, and when the nuns are surveyed, one of the most common, really the most common answer to why they um, reject having a religious affiliation is because they reject the politics of the American church. And we're going to talk more about that later. So what makes America truly unique and great is our constitutional provisions for the separation of powers, the separation of church and state. Now, the unity of church and state is at the heart of what has been going back to the time of the Little Horn Power that has been Christian imperialism. Now, in this slide, you will notice that the C in Christian is in lowercase and the I is in uppercase, and that's by design because notice the definition. When Christians became anti-Christian by embracing the offer of empire, which Jesus rejected. Is that a question or a hallelujah or what? Why is there politics in the church to begin with? I'm talking about faith, not politics. Just want you to, you know, let's be very straight about that. We need to understand what is happening. This afternoon, we're going to have some time for discussion, and we can take that up a little, in, in a little bit more detail. We're kind of on the clock this morning, and I want to try to get through the slides. But the history of the union of church and state has been the history of Christian imperialism, right? Of Christianity blending with the powers of state and behaving in very unchristian ways. It led to the doctrine of discovery, which was essentially the right to depopulate an entire continent in the name of Christ. And we certainly have seen the effects of that here in Arizona in terms of how Native Americans have been treated in, in this state. And it represents the dragon heart of the second beast, which not only had little use for indigenous peoples, but imported slave labor from across the ocean. So the dragon speaking, there's, I'm not going to belabor this point, but 
even a rudimentary understanding of American history, the dragon has been very active throughout, right? There's many, many examples of oppression and injustice uh, throughout American history. M maybe it's kind of rude of me, but on occasion when I've been in Hispanic churches, I have said to folks, you know, uh, you guys are not special. Uh, you know, our country is treating Hispanic immigrants very badly, but you're in good company because every generation of immigrants has been treated very badly unless you were northern white Europeans. Pretty much true, right? Jews were not welcomed. Uh, you know, during the time of Germany, um, America did not want and turned away Jews. We did not want Jewish immigration. Um, and, uh, you know, many other groups were unwelcome, and not all of them people of color. Italians, Irish were not welcomed because they were Catholic. So let's take a few minutes and explore a little more the genius of the separation of church and state, what these principles really were about that made America uniquely lamb-like, uniquely Christ-like from, uh, from the beginning. So Thomas Jefferson, uh, third president of the United States, on his tombstone, he wanted to be known for three things. And being president was not one of them. Do you know what he wanted to be known for? What do we, what's Jefferson most famous for? Declaration of Independence. That's one thing, okay? This is another one. He was very committed to religious freedom, and he was very proud of the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. And the third thing was founding the University of Virginia uh, in Charlottesville, which was famous recently for what happened in, was it 2017 there, with the riots and, and the demonstrations and, and the death of um, someone run over by a car. I'm trying to remember her name. It's going to come to me this afternoon, of course, after we're done, right? So this is a brilliant statement of our founding principles. Whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free. I can't think of a better way to start a discussion of religious freedom or to capture the heart of you know, religious freedom. Whereas Almighty God hath created the mind free, that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness. So what is he talking about there? I know that the English is a little bit old-fashioned, but he's saying, you know, if you try to regulate religion, if you try to, you know, punish people for not behaving and not having the right beliefs and religious practices, what do you do? You make them hypocrites. You can coerce conduct, but then all you're doing is making them hypocrites, right? And he says that they are a departure. All of this legislative efforts, all of these punishments or burdens on religion, 
that make people hypocrites are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion, who being Lord both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was in his almighty power to do. One of my favorite sermon illustrations I've used over many years, there was a time, my kids are all older now, but um, I had four teenagers at the same time. Count them, four. Okay. Start at teenagers at the same time? Bless you, sister, and you still here, you know, survive to tell about it. And, you know... I would, I would, I was tempted, you know, there were times when I was tempted to just pray, Lord, just, you know, rearrange their brain chemistry and fix them up from the inside, make them perfectly happy, healthy, holy, and obedient, right? And, and, and in my more humble and honest moments, you know, I'd be tempted to pray the same thing for myself because, uh, you know, I could use it too, right? God does not work that way. If he were to use power, he could have, you know, after Adam and Eve messed up in the garden, he could have just started over. He could have rewired their brains and and started over, but he doesn't. The fact that Christ gave his life to die for us is the best evidence that God will not use any bit of force or coercion in trying to win our love, our faith, and our allegiance. Isn't that right? Jefferson was not an evangelical or a born-again Christian. He was not. He was a skeptic. His Bible, that he, he did a New Testament that took all the miracles out. Didn't believe in them. But he had an understanding of the character of God as portrayed in scripture. He was smart and obviously very well read. He goes on to say that the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, and notice he says not just civil rulers, but ecclesiastical as well, impious presumption, who being themselves but fallible and uninspired men have assumed dominion. We're gonna look at dominion again this afternoon have assumed dominion over the faith of others. Not just civil rulers, but religious rulers assuming dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, endeavoring to impose them on others. He says they've established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time. Well, that's the Adventist understanding of the little horn power and the 1260 years of of what happened during the Dark Ages. Jefferson understood the lessons of history. Would have made a great Adventist. Now, Jefferson was ambassador to France right after uh, the war the Revolutionary War ended. And, you know, the various states now were retooling their own sets of laws in the absence of of 
dominion by England. And one of the things that had taken place in Virginia up until this time was that the taxes would fund the clergy and the clergy essentially served as the, the teachers in the different uh, districts. And of course, the dominant church in Virginia was Anglican, but the British lost the war. And so, you know, a generation or so before the war, there was a great awakening, and there was an explosion of other faith groups, right? Methodists and Presbyterian and Baptists. And there was a lot of growing hostility against the preferential treatment that the Anglicans were receiving. Well, the politics of this came to a head in Virginia, and, and this particular political struggle has featured very large in Supreme Court decisions and in American history ever since. Patrick Henry proposed a very unremarkable bill to continue the tax funding of Christian teachers. And Madison organized the opposition and got the bill put over to the next year and there were a dozen or more different petitions circulated by all of the different faith groups. But the largest one was this one that Madison wrote. And if there's a single historical document on religious liberty that I wish every American would read, it is Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance. It was a petition against tax funding of religious education. Do we have tax funding of religious education in Arizona? Big time, right? Big time. What is it, $6,000 per student? Something like that, six or $7,000 per student. We hold it for a fundamental and undeniable truth that religion, which he defines as the duty which we owe to our creator and the manner of discharging it. When I was in law school, the other professor I worked for, we were doing an article about the First Amendment separation of church and state, the, the so-called Establishment Clause. And I got paid minimum wage to read and analyze virtually every law review article of any note that had ever been written about the Establishment Clause. Fantastic education for what God had called me to do. And some of those were about the definition of religion. Very hard from a legal standpoint to define religion. We're, we're getting into that again now in the context of uh, companies trying to defend themselves when they fired people um, because they wouldn't get vaccinated for religious reasons. Uh, that's a, another story. We can talk about that this afternoon. Um, Madison had a very basic understanding, right? Religion is the duty we owe our creator and the manner of discharging it. And he said that it can be directed only by reason and conviction, not by force or violence. Similar theme to what Jefferson had sounded, right? But mind you, 
this is what got Jefferson's bill passed. Because when uh, Madison got Patrick Henry's bill put over to the next year and they filed all these petitions, Meanwhile, they elevated Patrick Henry to the governor's mansion. He was out of the way from the, from the House of Burgesses, and they got Jefferson's bill passed instead. Instead of Patrick Henry, they defeated the tax funding bill. They defeated Patrick Henry's bill. And, and this was the argument against it. The religion, then, of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. Do you see the, the concepts that went into the First Amendment, the free exercise of religion clause, that we're free to practice our faith according to the dictates of conscience? We maintain, therefore, that in matters of religion, no man's right is abridged by the institution of civil society. Religion is wholly exempt from its cognizance. The basic concept of the separation of church and state, religion is not a proper subject of legislation. Religion is something apart. It, our duty to God precedes our obligations to civil society. The institution of civil society does not somehow negate or take precedence or minimize in any way our relationship and our obligations to the creator. You with me so far? And by the way, uh, these are just kind of some excerpts, some snippets from a much longer document I would not have time to bore you with the whole thing. But it's well worth the read. Madison says it is proper, and, and, and this is often quoted out of context and, mis, and for the improper purposes, but it, it's a fair statement to say it is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. Who does not see that the same authority which can establish Christianity Make America a Christian nation, as some states want to declare that their state is a Christian nation. Who does not see the same authority which can establish Christianity in exclusion of all other religions may establish with the same ease any particular sect of Christians in exclusion of all other sects. So if government has the authority to favor religion, it has the authority to favor a particular religion and to disfavor a religion. And if a religion is to be favored or disfavored, where do you think Seventh-day Adventists are going to fit into that picture? Are we going to be on the favored side or the disfavored side? Okay, well, now we've got you talking. All right. That the same authority, and he goes on to say, the same authority that can force a citizen to contribute three pence only of his property for the support of any one establishment may force him to conform to any other establishment in all cases whatsoever. So what's the significance here? First of all, this is not a hypothetical. Throughout New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, each town had a church, they were congregational churches, and they were supported by everybody's property taxes. But as the Baptists grew, they objected to paying their taxes to support somebody else's church. 
Well, there were some communities that, if they had enough Baptists to establish their own church in that community, then perhaps they would be able to pay their taxes to support their own church. They objected even to that because the principle, the Baptist principle, was voluntarism, that religion had to be completely voluntary. You can't force somebody to pay taxes even to support their own religion. And there were Baptists who lost their property for non-payment of taxes. And so what Madison is writing here is not a hypothetical. He's dealing with something current. Now, when he talks about tax support of religion as a religious establishment, think of the First Amendment that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. One of the most significant establishments in colonial times was tax funding of religion. Now we can talk this afternoon if you want about the significance of tax funding of religious schools, but understand that it is a repudiation of the non-establishment principles that our nation was founded upon. Okay? It is very much an establishment of religion. Whatever, you know, uh, foolishness the courts may rule, and, and they have, it is an establishment of religion. And Sunday laws would be an establishment of religion. Madison's point is that once you give the state authority to establish religion, where do you draw the line? If they can do this, they can do that. If they can tax, you know, force you to pay taxes to support religious education, they can punish you for not going to church on Sunday. The bill, or Saturday. And by the way, when A.T. Jones testified in Congress against the Sunday law and was pressed, well, you would be in support of a Saturday law, wouldn't you? He said, absolutely not, because the principle was the thing. The bill, again, Patrick Henry's bill, uh, tax funding of religion bill, implies either that the civil magistrate is a competent judge of religious truth, I mean, even back then, I think that um, that was a laughable proposition, that we would trust our politicians to be a judge of religious truth, or that he may uh, employ religion as an engine of civil policy, that the magistrate might somehow pursue civil goals by means of religion. The first, Madison says, is an arrogant pretension falsified by the contradictory opinions of rulers in all ages and throughout the world, the second an unhallowed perversion of the means of salvation. And I'm going to wrap up Madison with this uh, brilliant observation from history. And again, looking back over the history of the Dark Ages, Madison's take is, Experience witnesses that ecclesiastical establishments, instead of maintaining the purity and the efficacy of religion, have had a contrary operation. 
during almost 15 centuries, and he's looking back at the Dark Ages, he says, you know, the legal establishment of Christianity has been on trial. What have been its fruits? And it got cut off on here, and I have it in my notes. Let's see if I remember the quote. More or less in all places, pride and indolence in the clergy, servility in the laity, and I'll have to get you the rest of the quote when I boot up my computer. Uh, I'll finish it up this afternoon. But it's a scathing uh, take on the history of church and state through the centuries and uh, their collaboration. It's a, uh, just a stunning defense of the separation of church and state. All right, so let's skip this. Now, to those who say that America is legally a Christian nation, probably Exhibit A against that, and, and we can make these slides available to you if uh, you, you don't need to take pictures of them. Um, so one of the first foreign policy challenges that our new nation faced was that we didn't have a navy, and our merchant vessels were getting attacked by pirates in the Mediterranean, uh, primarily emanating from Tripoli. And the Washington administration negotiated a treaty that was ratified after he left office by the administration and the Senate during John Adams' presidency. So, you know, this treaty uh, is part of the law of the land. It's an official legal statement of American uh, law and policy. And as essential clause of the treaty and, and how we could make peace with a Muslim nation, Article 11 says, as the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the law's religion or tranquility of, of Muslims, and as the said states have never entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. So America, according to the Washington and Adams administrations, is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. So when Americans today talk about America as a Christian nation, they're talking about something that is a myth. Adventists have an understanding of the two horns. What really is Christian about America are these principles of protecting civil and religious freedom, the separation of church and state, the separation of powers that pr protects against oppression uh, and the violation of our rights. Now let me just remind myself where we're going. See the problem, Pastor, with not having my computer here is I don't know, don't remember exactly where we're going. All right. Now, when America speaks as a dragon, um, Let's take a closer look at what the prophecy really describes. Because again, 
What I have encountered in, in my decades in this church is that too many of us read the book, The Great Controversy, and we think we understand prophecy, and we don't really meditate on the words of Scripture itself. But the words of Scripture bear close examination. Now, one thing we see here is that the second beast makes an image of the first beast. Well, what does that mean? An image, you know, you look in the mirror, you get an image. So it's a likeness of the first beast. But again, Revelation is borrowing everything from the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see an image. So when it talks about America making an image, it's borrowing the, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and that image, right? Now, the dream, I think, is very significant. There was a wonderful issue of the Adventist Review uh, this summer. I want to say it might have been the July issue. The whole series of articles around recovering our understanding of Daniel 2. Because there's been some reinterpretation um, in our midst to, to somehow accommodate this sort of Christian American, Christian imperialist um, uh, you know, innovation, if you will. But in the image of Daniel 2, how is the kingdom of God established? Anybody? You have a series of world empires, right? Symbolized by the different phases of, of that image. The head of gold and the chest and all. And if... Um, so Lucas is very friendly, but if, if anybody's concerned, I'm happy to put him back on the leash, but he does like to, to, to wander and visit at times. So just let me know. I don't mean for him to, to be a bother to anyone, but he's very, very sweet, and I've got a sermon illustration about him coming up. Um, the stone cut out without human hand smashes to smithereens all of the human kingdoms, right? And establishes a kingdom that will live forever. God establishes his kingdom without any help from us. And yet, there are so many Christians today who are so intent on somehow bringing in the kingdom of God as an earthly dominion, right? So it's very significant that the United States follows the lead of Nebuchadnezzar in making an image. And we worship the image. So one of the most significant aspects of this prophecy is that the religion of the last days, the dominant religion, is idolatrous. The worship of an image, the worship of a nation... The worship of the beast is the worship of a nation. So it is patriotism taken to an idolatrous extreme. You know, I left California to come to Arizona because I love the desert. I love Arizona. And I love our country. But I don't worship it. Every night, 
you look out at the clouds and the light, and the light on the mountains. We're, we're in the northeast part out towards Rio Verde. It's fantastic. It's, you know, God paints his masterpiece every day. You know, it's, it's just marvelous. But I don't, I worship the creator. I don't worship the country. Is that my last slide? No. So, the religion that is dominant, the religion of prophecy, is the worship of a beast. It's patriotism taken to an idolatrous extreme. Jesus says that it, the counterfeit of the last days will be in his name. So it will be a Christian form of idolatry. Or uh, I think it's Timothy. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he writes that um, it will be a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, right? It is a blending of God and country, of faith and patriotism. Church and state united, working together, in Revelation 17, we have an image that captures it perfectly. It's a woman riding on the beast, right? Now think about the imagery of the woman riding on the beast. Now, the, the scholars tell me that in Revelation, there's only one woman that the woman of Revelation 12 and the woman of Revelation 17 are not a different woman. It's the church, first in a pure and holy condition, and then in a corrupt condition by the time we get to Revelation 17. Dressed in scarlet, right, with the name on her forehead, Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, right? So when the woman becomes, and, and, and mind you, what is it that corrupts the woman? If you go back to my slide about Christian imperialism, it's accepting the offer of empire that Jesus rejected. When did Jesus reject Satan's offer of empire? It was the third temptation, right? The third temptation, Jesus is taken up on the mountain and shown the empires of the earth, and Satan says, bow down to me, and it's all yours. And he rejected that offer. Get thee behind me, Satan. As it is written, you shall worship the Lord, and him only shalt thou serve. Right? But the church has rejected, has, has forsaken, God in pursuit of empire. And we'll talk more about that. And in Revelation 13, well, so in the imagery of the woman on the beast, any equestrians here? Anybody like to ride horses? My wife is an equestrian. We've got horses. We traded, you know, suburbia to be able to have um, uh, an acre and a couple of horses on our land. Well, if you're going to get up on top of a 1,200-pound animal 
you better be in control, right? The woman is most definitely holding the reins of power. She's calling the shots. She's riding that beast, and she's in control. That's the imagery, right? So it's the use of legislation to impose the will of the church, or as Ellen White says, to enforce her dogmas and execute her decrees. And of course, the whole uh, picture of Revelation 13 is a religion that has become intolerant and persecutes those who dissent, right? If you don't receive the mark of the beast, what happens? Can't buy or sell. And ultimately, capital punishment. It's a capital offense, right? Put to death. Now the last bullet point here, I want to just take a minute to point out. Fear-based. American politics today from left and right is driven by fear. If you get fundraising appeals that seem to get your adrenaline flowing, watch yourself. I don't care what your politics are. My point is, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Now, we Adventists, we profess to be commandment keepers, right? Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, you know, maybe it's kind of simplistic to say that, well, the fourth commandment has more words than all the others, so it must be really important, right? Do you know the commandment that is repeated more than a hundred times throughout the scriptures? Do not fear. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? Isaiah 43. Fear not, O Israel, for I have redeemed thee. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, they will not overflow you. When you go through the fire, it won't burn you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Don't be afraid. Do not succumb to a politics of fear. The religion of the beast in its image is a religion that is fear-based. Now, Adventism is not immune from being, at times, a religion of fear. I'm a, you know, an adult convert to Adventism. I came into the church during my college years. My number one son, who's traveling the world right now, he's not in church. He told me only in his 20s that the religion he was taught in Sabbath school and church school was a religion of fear. 
I never knew that until it was too late. It's not my religion. You know, and I said, well, what about John 3.16, for God so loved the world? You know, you weren't taught God's love, religion of love? And he said, well, yeah, but what's the next part of that, Dad? Whosoever believeth. And I was never sure I believed. And if I didn't believe, you know, bad things for those who don't believe. It is so important that we not succumb to either a religion or a politics of fear and that our, our, we get it straight, isn't it? You know, it'll become clearer during the sermon hour. Why, why do I have the heading on these slides, the worship of the American God? Because it's a uniquely, you know, it's the two-horned, the second beast. It's the religion of the second beast. It's the American Jesus. You know, liberals would like to call it the Republican Jesus. I don't think the Jesus has to be Republican. I think it's just American. Um, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. We'll, we'll have more to say about that. But, you know, when we see that this is a religion that persecutes those who don't worship the image, we see that the religion is exclusive. It's an us-against-them religion, a my way or the highway. It's fear-based, it's violent, it unites church and state. And this is all what the text tells us. Does that make sense? This is the false religion of Revelation 13. And it's important, I think, that we, you know, that we see it for what it is and see the principles. Because are, can we be exclusive? Can we be you know, us against them, my way or the highway? You know, in, in the Adventist culture, You've got some staunch conservatives. Nothing the General Conference does is good enough for them. You've got staunch liberals who like to beat up on the conservatives. Right? You know, we, we love to, well, like we've, the saying goes, we like to eat the pastor for lunch. You know, and find fault with the sermon. Um, you know, if we're finding fault with a sermon, then we're simply recognizing what Paul said about the foolishness of preaching that saves those who believe. You know, um, we're human, we preachers. We don't get it exactly right. And besides, you remember the old um, illustration about the blind men and the elephant? And they all are groping at a different part of the elephant. So the, the, the blind guy who grabs the elephant's tail has a very different understanding of the elephant than the one who grabs his tusk, the one who grabs his trunk, the one who grabs his leg, right? 
And, and that's how we all are. We see through a glass darkly. So let's, instead of looking for, you know, what might be wrong with the preacher's preaching, you know, let's look for what, what does God have for me in that, right? What is God trying to tell me? It doesn't matter if he got it all right. The question is, you know, what does God trying to speak to me? Because we don't get it all right. We're human. Now, the question is, why does this apostate last days religion find it necessary to persecute those who dissent? Why is it so important that dissenters you know, have to be excluded economically and ultimately subject to the death penalty? I'm going to suggest to you that we take a lesson from the life of Christ here. Now, in John chapter 10, three months before the crucifixion, December, Christ is in the temple. It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah, if you remember, commemorates the stunning victory of the Maccabees over the Greeks and throwing the Greeks out and restoring the temple worship and sanctifying the temple. About, uh, what, maybe 162 uh, before the Common Era? To be in the temple at Hanukkah time with the Romans, under the thumb of the Romans, was a very tough time to remember the exploits of the Maccabees. And Jesus presents himself there as the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice. And it's very clear the good shepherd, you know, is throughout scripture a symbol of the Messiah. And I do a whole study on that. I generally preach about it in December under a sermon entitled, What Did Jesus Do in December? <laughs> it's my holiday-themed sermon. But the Jews weren't interested in the good shepherd Messiah. They wanted Messiah, the son of David, who would rule all nations with a rod of iron and establish the kingdom and throw out the Romans. And they were very upset with Jesus. And they knew that he was not the Messiah that they wanted. You know, folks, we don't always get the Messiah that we want, do we? Loved one gets cancer. Maybe uh, we lose a child to suicide. Or maybe we struggle because, you know, one of our kids is gay. And, and that is a struggle for us. We don't always get the Messiah that we want. Our prayers aren't always answered the way that we want. But isn't it true that we get the Messiah that we need? That Jesus is really all that we need. Amen? The Jews knew that Jesus was not the Messiah that they wanted. And the next thing that John records is the raising of Lazarus. 
And now, this was big trouble, right? The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, and they said, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, you tell me, was this a paranoid, unreasonable fear? No, I don't think so. A generation later, the Romans did come and destroy the temple, right? Raising somebody from the dead? Where was it going to go from there? Utter chaos, anarchy. And yeah, there were, you know, so much commotion. Yeah, the Romans were going to come, and who knew what the outcome would be? Did Jesus pose an existential threat to the status quo? Absolutely he did. And he certainly was perceived that way. So Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he says to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus was crucified because the leaders perceived an existential threat. Now, as a historical matter, it is not historically correct either that the Jews rejected Jesus or that the Jews crucified Christ. The Romans crucified Christ at the pressuring of a small group of Jewish establishment. But if you read the book of Acts carefully, both priests and Jewish people overwhelmingly accepted Christ as Messiah. So it's simply not true. You know, the, the history that has come down to us carelessly that somehow puts the blame on the Jews and has led to a lot of persecution of the Jews through all the ages. My proposition is that history repeats. Somehow, well, Ellen White says that we Adventists will be um, seen as enemies of law and order and bringing the judgments of God upon the land. So whatever form that takes, we don't really know, but it does appear that those who are on the receiving end of the persecution, who dissent from receiving the mark of the beast, that they are perceived to be an existential threat. And that's what leads to the final rapid movements of prophecy. I just want to see... Okay, so I've got two more slides, and we're pretty much out of time, but... But let me just um, read to you here from Acts chapter 1. When they had come together, they asked him, and this is just before Jesus ascends, right? Um, Acts chapter 1. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
what's behind that question? What are they really saying? After all they've been through with the crucifixion and the, the resurrection and the, you know, all of the times of prayer, the disappointment, the highs, the lows, the expectations of Christ is <coughs> overthrowing the Romans and then he gets crucified. And they're still looking for Jesus to establish his kingdom and they still want to be in the seat of power, right? Or is it now? Now you're going to establish the kingdom. Yippee, right? Right? And we get to be there with you and, and, and exercise power with you? Uh-uh. What does Jesus say? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now that word authority is exactly what they wanted to exercise. In the Greek, it is the word exousia. The authority to rule in God's name. They wanted the exousia. They wanted to sit with Christ on the, you know, next to the throne. It wasn't given to them. The authority to rule in God's name with God has never been given to the church. Is that clear? Can I get an amen? amen? But the church was given a greater power, a greater gift. But you will receive, not exousia, the Greek word here for power is dunamis. And we get lots of good words from the Greek dunamis, right? Dynamite. Real power. When what? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. The only power that God has ever given to his people is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to develop that theme more uh, in the next presentation. God has not given us a calling to rule in his name, to exercise political clout, to, to dominate, as it were, to exercise dominion. He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, to win souls, to build up his kingdom that way. So I'm going to modify this thesis somewhat. I do believe that the religion of Revelation 13 is the dominant religion in American life today, that it is fully formed. Um, the threefold union, I'm not, I'm not sure I can say that the image of the beast is fully formed. It's getting there. The threefold union is definitely uh, well in established, and, and we'll look at that some more this afternoon. American religion worships the American God and idolatrous counterfeit. To be continued. <laughs>